Fox Cats. Fox Cats. Fox Cats. Hello and welcome to Box Cutters episode 81. It's growing crunchingly tasty. Growing name- crunchingly. That's what I said. My name is Josh Canal. To my left, Mr. Ross McQueen. Joshua. <laughs> Brett. <laughs> and to my right, Brett Cropley. Good evening, viewers. What I'm, the hell? I'm being Good AJ. Evening, Roscoe. I'm being AJ oh. from uh, The Biggest Loser. <laughs> there are now. <laughs> Three left in the studio. Joshua, <laughs> Brett, and Ross. You three are left in the studio. Oh, get on with the show! <laughs> I, I reckon... Ross, you insane! Daryl Summers and Andrew G are much worse for just... And the winner, the, the winner is... Sorry. That's true, but that's just, that's just like a gap. This is just no, no, but it's it's intentional pregnant pause yeah, for yeah, dramatic yeah. effect. Yeah, but with, the thing is, AJ apparently is a comedian. Yes, that's true. Apparently, now, nothing is going to do worse for her comedy career than performing like that that's on true. Biggest Loser. And nothing is going to make her. I don't, I don't know how to phrase this properly. I'll just Talented. say it. She's, she's, she's a large lady for somebody to be hosting The Biggest Loser. Let's well, face it. Well, see, here's, here's the thing. Apparently, she was a much larger lady. Yes. And lost a lot of weight, which is what made her the perfect host, apparently. <laughs> but but she, she, no offence, but she possibly needs to lose a little more to be in that position. Well, I was, just, I was just, just, just an idea. <laughs> the same as with those ads. Have you seen the ads for Fernwood with one of last year's contestants? Yes. And they only frame her head and shoulders shot. Why? Because she's the size of a house. <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't lost any weight at all. <laughs> and anyway, she lost on a show. She put straight back on. And um, and you know what else? Her eyebrows are too bushy. <laughs> <laughs> Laura can't speak. Laura. Laura, one of the contestants. I. Uh, uh, I think uh, it was Marie who coined the term um, brilliantly in her Green Guide column, borderline stroke victim. <laughs> and AJ can't speak either. She's yeah, got a real lisp. And what about Muntalita? Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't get me started on her. Oh, Muntalita. What a, oh, no, 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 no. Hey, uh, massive... Absolutely massive show. I think that's why we're so excited. It's, I'm, I'm and it's not just the two bright red shirts staring back at me. <laughs> I, think <it's, laughs> I think we're very excited about our special guest. We, we are. We have Mr. Peter Smith coming in later on in the show. For those who don't know, that's Pete Smith. Yes. Oh, he, uh, Pete Smith speaking. Yeah, he, uh, he has... Uh, uh, thanks for ruining my intro. <laughs> <coughs> he... Uh, that's fine, Brett. <laughs> Come on, fine. everybody saw McAuliffe. They would have been expecting it. Uh, yeah, he'll uh, he'll be coming in for a, a chat about uh, the good old days of, of television. And if you're wondering who he is, you'll know the voice. You, you really Instantly. will. You'll see him on the video podcast. You'll see him on the video podcast. Is, that's yeah. true. But, video podcast. Uh, you'll, you will but know the voice. And his face isn't nearly as famous as, as his voice. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of the greatest... Uh, announcers, television announcers that this country's ever seen, mm-hmm. uh, but also has had uh, just a huge career on television. So I can't wait to talk to him about that. And if you're in a bus, you'll feel like you're in your lounge room in front of your TV. Yes. All cosy with a blanket on. On yep. Channel 9. 
Maybe yep. a hot chocolate. Yep, exactly. Uh, we've got a, a new show review. Yes. Is that, is that Rain's mid-season replacement in the States. Uh, I, I'm going to talk about a couple of shows on the Lifestyle Food channel. We've got some quotes. Finish it all off with pork. But as always, we're going to kick things off with the Box Cutters News. <laughs> Inexplosive, just a hand. I think it happened today as we're recording this, which is Monday. Monday. Uh, Kevin Rudd and Joe Hockey have decided to quit their roles on Sunrise. Now, what were their roles on Sunrise? They, they basically they were members of the Sunrise family. Yes, but they uh, they. What came technically on. does that mean? Well, that it, means that at Christmas they get to throw food at each other. I, I heard it referred I to. Referred to a few times uh, during the week as the Sunrise Cult, <laughs> which I think is the, the which cult, I think is more to the point. The Cult of Koshi. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it was kind of lighthearted jabs at each other, pushing their political views, but not too much. And it, it, it was more. It was. It was definitely on the Sunrise. And there's a similar thing of, on the Today Show with Julia Gillard and uh, Abbott, which which they haven't quit. Interestingly. No, they're, they're but, still well, they're still plowing ahead with that. One of the things that I heard or read about today was uh, the um, concern for Rudd now being the leader of the opposition. When he started yep. doing it, that wasn't his position. No, and that seems to have been what changed and what pressured them out. On top of the false dawn uh, Ho Chi Minh thing. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think. Yeah, I think there's two distinct issues here. I think there is his role now as leader. Yes, and. Uh, and the kind of the conflict that can cause. And, and I wasn't aware that that was causing conflict, but apparently it is with other networks. Uh, other networks obviously don't like Sunrise, and so Rudd is up for more criticism from the other networks with anything that's involving Sunrise. Because, I mean, I mean, we all know how heavily, say, for example, Channel 9 and Channel 7 go at each other. So so I, I, I didn't actually realise that was happening. The False Dawn service is an interesting one, though. I mean, I'm not... You know I'm not one to support Sunrise on anything, but I mean, give me a break. I, I think I think the uh, the veterans have got it completely wrong here. Now, obviously, I'm not a veteran, and maybe it is some great insult now, to to. Can you, can you hold on a second? Because I mm-hmm. I kind of caught the tail end of this story, and I don't know what the what the crux is really about. Well, television being television, uh, they wanted to have the dawn service at dawn. From Gallipoli. Right. But obviously Gallipoli is some time behind. Yes. Because of the... Uh, time zones and the way the world spins. Exactly. So they could show the live dawn service uh, as part... They could show a dawn service, but it would be the day after Anzac Day. Right. So they were flying a whole lot of people across and they were going to do a faux dawn service. The day before is my understanding of it, right? So and and so what? Sure? I, I thought it was Vietnam, and they wanted to do it like a couple of hours early because that'd be seven thirty-five local time. I could, I could be wrong. You're probably right. So so just before the actual dawn over there. Anyway, the the, the thing was it was going to be uh it wasn't it wasn't going to be uh yeah they were going they were going to fake it basically. Right. And so and so what's your what's your take on it? Well, I I think that uh, I. I 
completely, as, as I could have the issue completely, completely wrong and be talking about the wrong war, maybe I'm not the person to be uh, to be casting judgment on this. But I, I just think the veterans take what you can get. I mean, Channel Seven are are showing some sort of dawn service. That's great. They could be showing cartoons. Yeah, and from Vietnam, which which is a, a war that has been largely forgotten over the years, and, and in fact resented. Yeah. Um, so so I reckon it'd actually be a good thing for them, whether it's actually at dawn or or an hour or two before. Yeah, um, yeah. just for awareness raising. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think I I, th- I think you're spot on there. I just think. I understand that it might be some great insult that it's not at dawn or that it's the day before or even if it's a few hours earlier or whatever it was going to be. I just think, you know, at least they're bringing attention to it. Yeah, and but but there's also... They could always just do the dawn service from a war memorial in any particular city. Yeah. I mean, there's... It's- well, I, th- I think now they're doing a dawn service from a beach on the Gold Coast. Right. Is how they've... Is how they've can I can I buy a Starburst? A can I buy a Starburst lolly from and the Big Brother uh, household? Maybe I, I think it's I think it's from a Gold Coast uh, beach, but I don't think anybody from the government or the opposition is going to be involved now. Right, and that's only Channel Seven, isn't it? Yes, that's yes. because uh, other networks also run their own uh, dawn service uh, bits of coverage as well. Channel Nine would, yeah. Channel Ten won't. No, they've got cartoons to show. Yeah. See, nine nine have no cartoons. No, no. If and nine had Uji Go, then, <laughs> then nine would be showing that rather than ten. Brett Cropley, what have you got for us? Uh, Channel 10's Melbourne news anchor Mel Walden, who listeners may know from Channel 7 when he was yes, the news anchor. Back in the day. Uh, because nobody watches uh, the five o'clock news on Channel 10. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. It wins the ratings every night. Somebody's got to be watching it. Because nothing else is up against it, um, has taken a swipe on air at the network's reporting of an exclusive interview with disgraced flight attendant Lisa Robertson, who you listeners may know from uh, being a bit of a flying mattress with Rafe Fines and uh, getting sacked from the organisation. Um, the, there was a report, an interview by alleged entertainment reporter Angela Bishop. <laughs> Which part's alleged? <laughs> entertainment or reporter? Both. <laughs> With a near-naked Ms. Robinson, Robertson uh, from the report. However, it was abruptly cut short. Uh, like this? <laughs> were, you, were you doing an example of it? <laughs> I had the wrong emphasis. However, it was cut short. Uh, Walden was unhappy about the story and after... Introducing another reporter into scrapping homework for primary school children, he asked, is homework, like that hostess story, really a waste of time? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic, Mal. Yeah, yeah. good on him. And, and he's spot on as well. I mean, this glorified flight attendant, she's already got her 60 minutes of fame on 60 Minutes. Good for her. And sold the story to News of the World or whoever it was yeah, over in the, the UK. the fact that she's doing a photo shoot for a Zoo Weekly magazine... Get stuffed. No one cares. Exactly. No one cares. I mean, no one's no one's ever uh, done an interview with the uh, air hostesses who have sex with me on planes. That's true. That's uh, true. You know, why is Ray Fine so special? Well, huh? Why? An empty chair is hardly compelling TV. <laughs> Ooh, zing. Ooh. Uh, well, at I'm, least I don't, I don't get thrown by a full stop, Brett Crawley. Oh. <laughs> 
I'm, uh, I'm hoping that this that this kind of snowballs and Mel does it after all of Angela Bishop's stories. Because, <laughs> I mean, God knows. It'd be great. Could Nobody's watching them. anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> One day Mel Walton's going to go, if only we had Richard Wilkins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Hey, uh, the, uh, the Jackson family, Michael Jackson's family, formerly the Jacksons, formerly the Jackson 5, formerly just a bunch of kids, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, they're uh, about to start a show called Pop Dynasty, mm-hmm. where they're going to be looking for the next musical family. To hand off to, uh, on, right on the back of their fantastic success as <laughs> the greatest thing in pop music and look for at the what, last three decades. Look at what it did for them. Yeah. Here, well, congratulations. You could end up like us. Like us. Or like Hanson. Yeah. Or uh, who's, uh, there's, there's another one that I was, oh, they mentioned the Carpenters in the article in Variety, but really, that's a brother and sister pairing of two very talented people who, who wrote some excellent songs. The Partridge family. Not a real family. Oh, what? Not a real family. Not Just partridges like, either. The monkeys were not real monkeys. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, this uh, this, uh, this uh, show is helmed by Jermaine Jackson. You've, you've really got the three best Jacksons working on this one. <laughs> you've got Jermaine Jackson uh, Michael? heading it up. No. Janet? No. Latoya? Yes. <laughs> Tito? Yes. Hey. Oh. <laughs> Really? Tito, Latoya, and Jermaine. Jermaine Jackson, who I think his last television appearance was on an episode of Facts of Life. Are they are they bringing in the father for a special guest child abuse sessions? <laughs> <laughs> Lawsuits can be made attention to Brett Cropley at hooray at boxcutters.net. I'm not inferring anything by it. Anyway, they're, they're not sure of... <laughs> they, they've made this announcement. They're not sure of the format. They're not sure of who has what role in the, uh, in the production. But uh, th- this is looking to go ahead probably uh, for this summer. How does this tie in with the rumoured Jackson 5 Las Vegas show? Uh, I'm sure that's where the finale will be. Because, uh, yeah, apparently they're going to uh, do a bit of a Celine Dion and try and take over a corner a bit of the uh, Las Vegas Strip. Except, five. except it couldn't be Jackson 5. No. Really? Because Michael, well, Michael wouldn't do it. Michael no, no, no Michael's to... doing it. He's that what? hard up for cash that he's doing it, which is why I'm surprised he's not doing this show. Well, he's, he's not doing it yet. Right. Right. Uh, because, yeah, because I would be very, very surprised if we don't see a reality show based on the Jackson 5 getting the, getting the shit back together and getting the band together and, you know... Well, going that's on the road to Las it, Vegas. Is is Michael not still poison? Like, would people oh, watch it? People people would go for a Jackson Five reunion. Oh, people yeah. would forget all about the problems, oh, especially if you, uh, especially if you're in Vegas and you've got too much money and whatever. And, you'd Celine Dion made a career of it, and I would prefer to scrape my ears with a cheese grater than listen to Celine Dion. But she's made a whole career of of, of a Vegas thing, and she's. Uh, often in and she's the, not the first. No, but she's often in the uh, in the top ten of concerts, just purely just from what she does in Vegas. Because mm. apart, I think everywhere else she's retired. Well, yeah, Michael Jackson could be the Wayne Newton of the future. Yes, yes, he could be. <laughs> hey, good news for a show that uh, we all liked that came out of America in last time's fall lineup, which was Friday Night Lights. 
And it has just finished. It's just finished. It's just finished I'm, in I'm the a States. Few, I'm a few episodes behind, but I have been oh, very much enjoying it. But I'm looking, looking forward so to finishing good. it. Uh, news on, uh, good news on two fronts. One is that it won a Peabody Award during the week. Which is uh, an excellence in media uh, yeah. award. Yeah, I tried to look them up. I couldn't find much out about it other than it's given by a university and it's supposedly more prestigious because they don't have any set categories or any set number of awards. So therefore, it is supposedly more excellent to get one. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of like the Nobel Prize for media in in America. Peabody Award is is very highly regarded. Oh, like and, a Walkley over here. Well, no, Walkley is is just for journalism. But but projected onto media. Yeah, it's uh, so it's like a Logie. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a lot like a Logie. It's the TV it's like, readers have voted on it. It's like a silver Logie for most popular new talent. Right. That's. <laughs> I don't know, I'm making that one up, but it's uh, like a people's choice. But it is it is great news for Friday Night Lights because I I, I was actually thinking about it this morning, just mm-hmm. driving to work and thinking about how great Friday Night Lights is and how it's uh, just one of the great dramas of this year. Yep. We yep. haven't seen anything like it for a long and time. And the other the other good news was that it's been given a six episode asked for six scripts for next season. Now this isn't a half season ask which would be 12 or no, 11 or 12. Quarter it's season. A quarter it's season. a quarter season. It's not see it's not such great news. I mean great news. But it's better have, than you cancelled get off. Well, take your peabody and Here's my take on that. Mm-hmm. It's Firstly, you know, I, I've seen uh, shows that get asked for six six more scripts, and then they this happened with Arrested Development. We'll have six more scripts, and then we'll have two more scripts, and then we'll have five more scripts, and they don't know where the story is going to go because yes. they don't know how how long it's going to last. Yep. That's that can often be a problem. But also, uh, as as I was watching the end of Friday Night Lights, I almost wished that it would get cancelled because then we would have this one perfect season of yep. excellent television drama yep. rather than... Well, pretend it, it, it did. Well, but you can't. I mean, the, the thing is, there's, <laughs> there's a good yeah. chance that... In, in news just to hand, <laughs> Friday Night Lights has been cancelled. Oh. After one perfect season. <laughs> one perfect season. Yeah, uh, I know what you mean. Y- y- yep. It's, uh, it, it's a, a difficult decision, but also I don't want to see that the network have too much of a hand in, in messing around. We saw what they did with Homicide Life on the Streets. Mm-hmm. We've seen how networks have yep. stuffed around with uh, with TV shows. So, yeah. Is that what happened with that? Yeah. Every year. It, it was originally an independent production company and every year the network got more and more and more of the production. Uh, and, yeah. every and just the last two seasons of that were pretty much... Well, same with... Yeah. Any of the magic that, that it had was taken out. Same with Millennium, if our uh, listeners remember that. Great show from Chris Carter, the X-Files. Yes. Creator, fantastic show. Started off incredibly dark, both visually and, uh, you know, and in tone and content. And became a parody of itself. And then, yeah, just got more and more kind of light and sugary as it went on, which was, which was really sad. Uh, still, at the end, it was a lot better than a lot of other shows, but considering the starting point, it was very sad. Yep. Hey, uh, I just want to give a spin alert. Yes, please. The Austan Board of Directors have announced a, the reappointment of AGB Nielsen Media Researchers, the supplier of television audience measurement services, uh, beginning 1st of January 2008 for a seven-year agreement, providing a seamless transition from the current contract. Uh, 
the one of the, the spokespeople from Oztam say that our new agreement with AGB Nielsen provides the best foundation to achieve those aims. While we look to extend our service to include new features such as measurement of time shifted viewing. Now it's it's interesting that you say that, Brett, because I've got a story here about Lost, uh, where. Uh, the uh, Nielsen company in in the states has said that Lost hasn't really lost as many viewers as they think they have. Uh, it's just a lot of them are, are time shifting. And Nielsen in the states have two sets of uh, of of data. One is shows watched live, and shows watched within the next seven days. And uh, surely a much more accurate reading. No, yes. the two combined. The two co- the two combined. Are, uh, sorry, shows watched within seven days. So mm. that includes the live and, and time shifted. And Lost increases its numbers by 24%. Wow. Already, you, already big numbers yeah. before that. Uh, but when you, when you take that into account, and it is the most time shifted show in the States because viewers don't want to miss it. And uh, and networks haven't really got their, their head around this. Or is but, it because Lost has particular viewers that don't like watching commercials and so want to zap it? Oh, it, it would undoubtedly or, be a, a combination. Or is it the influence of the show itself, which is itself very time shift? Yes. Mm. Or maybe they time shifted especially because they know that there are going to be clues that they want to be able to backtrack that's, that's and, and see. Yep. I mean, it's it's a show that opens itself up for, for those possibilities. Yep. Yep. Or watching more than once. Hey, I don't know if anybody's watching the live feed of Channel of Lost from Channel 7 that's running at the moment. If you are, you're kind of at the point where I was thinking it was crap. Yep. Uh, stick with it. It gets much better. Uh, this week's episode especially was... Oh, what a was corker. Fantastic. So, yeah, keep watching uh, it. This week's uh, US... This week's in the US. This week's US, US episode. Episode, just, episode just number... Just to start watching ahead again. And, uh, so, so this, week, or this week coming up in Melbourne... Is the um, what's his name? D the the Sawyer? No, the time Sawyer finds the motorbike, <laughs> jumps, <laughs> jumps over, over the, the shark. Yeah, no. Um, is it Declan Dermot? De- Declan, the, the guy that was on the island already. Oh no, that's next week. That's next week. That's that's where it starts to pick up. Ah, uh, yes, yes. That's yes. where it really starts. And so. with the rest of his news in fifteen seconds, Brett Cropley. Oh, come on, uh, Big Brother has picked an OCD contestant. Uh, the producers have revealed one of the contestants has a mild obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, or is, is that the OC disorder? Um, <laughs> a bit of not indicated how and the person and their disorder the will be portrayed. Uh, this seems to be off the back of the UK version of the show last year that at some points had more interest than the locally grown uh, version here. People catching it on uh, Google Video and YouTube, uh, which had was was that crazy woman OCD? Uh, I don't I don't know. We'd have to we'll have to ask Jess when she's in. Yeah, Ooh, she'll be coming in uh, maybe next week. Why we not? could have her in talk about the start of Big Brother. Yes, mm. there might be some uh, some big news from Jess too. Oh. We'll have to see. Is she pregnant? You're getting married. <laughs> oh, you and Jess are getting married. Don't give it away. Oh, there might be some big news. Oh, okay, okay. We you're going to pro- for the test. You're going to propose to Jess, and that is the box cutters news. <laughs> and joining us now, a new member of the box cutters family, a man whose bio reads like the history of Australian television. He's worked with Graham Kennedy. He's worked with Bert Newton. He's worked with the D Generation with Mick Malloy and, and Tony Martin. Uh, he's he's basically 
taken us all the way through television in Australia. Welcome to the Box Cutters Microphones, Peter Smith speaking. Thank you very much, boys. This is really uh, shaping up to be the uh, interview of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope it is. Good to see you, fellas. It it is such an an honour and a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I I wanted to... There are so many things I I want to ask you about. But firstly, uh, coming from television, from, from, you know, you you were in the IMT days uh, and uh, and essentially the stuff that I know of as uh, as when television in Australia really got... You see kicking. some of the old DVDs, do you, that are luckily available now, of course, the old Kennedy stuff and yeah, the, uh, the old live variety era. You can get a feel for that, I guess, from those DVDs that and, are available now. And also when, when I was growing up, Channel 9 would show uh, some best ofs. and Retrospectives. And yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and and see, seeing all of those things. How would you say television has, has changed and how has your role changed? Well, I think television has changed dramatically uh, in the years since I started because it was such a novelty. Of course, people were staring at test patterns, for goodness sake, when I started. <laughs> people were, well, it was, you know, it, was, it really was a novelty. I mean, nobody had ever heard of uh, pictures coming out of a box. And so uh, if you were lucky enough to have one of the first television sets, believe you me, you would have, have it set up like a theatre in your lounge room or your dining room and you would ask selected neighbours down and it would be set up. All the chairs would be put in position and they'd come down at, uh, you know, 5.30 or 6.30 because it was only on for a few hours. They closed down, I think, about 8.30 at night. You'd come down you'd watch The Cisco Kid or Waterfront or Batman and Robin and think it was ace. And... Uh and when you got your start in television, you were doing uh, a sports hit parade show? Is that yes. Right? I, well, I was working for the ABC. I started out as a messenger boy at the ABC in, in, in the wake of people like Graham Kennedy and Keith Smith, who would only be a name to most of your listeners, but uh, Keith Smith conducted a lot of programs on the ABC, and I get con- confused, with, they get, get me mixed up with Keith, but he was a real star of the radio days. Uh, I mean, people like myself and Mike Walsh, Philip Brady, those sort of people, we all grew up wanting to be a radio announcer. Uh, there was no TV, mm-hmm. so we wanted to get into radio. You know, this was a glamorous medium. And uh, if you were a radio star back in the days before television, believe you me, your name, your photo was in the paper. That was a very big deal. You know, oh, here's a face. You could put a face to the to the voice. So people like Norman Banks and Kevin O'Gorman and uh, Norman Swain, these were the Melbourne stars. In Sydney, it was Bob Dyer, Jack Davey, you may have heard of, of course, by, yep. by reputation. So I got into uh, the ABC as a messenger boy and finally nagged them to the point where they put me on the air and in those days it was a very uh, austere operation it wasn't sort of so much personality and casual as it is now and so uh, it was a big deal to be on the ABC because I had my own hit parade in those days hit parade sounds pretty uh, you know old-fashioned these days because this was before the top 40 format Yes, And I mean, radio introduced that top 40 type format and blanket cover of pop records to really counter the threat of television. They didn't know what else to do. Talkback hadn't been invented. They didn't have the, the sort of technological expertise to have somebody ring in from Morty Alec or Thornbury and sound almost as though they were in the studio. They didn't have that sort of thing. So they went for pop records. But at the ABC, we had our own dance band. Can you imagine a radio station? You can't even imagine a television station with their own orchestra. I mean, sure, they come in for 
for Dancing with the Stars or one of the variety shows, but uh, a radio station with an orchestra, a 20-piece orchestra, that's what we had at the ABC. There was the ABC Melbourne Dance Band, mm-hmm. and they did popular music shows. And being the young guy, 17 or 18, I was given the task of doing the hit parade, and we used to cover the overseas hits with local performers. Ah, that's so, a bit like the KTL, not by original artists. Well, that came, that came, absolutely. We used to. Well, you see, in those days, you didn't get the records in tandem with uh, the releases in tandem with overseas, with America and England. You didn't get them for sometimes six months. So I had a friend who was an A and R man at uh, W and G Records, which was a. Uh, a popular recording, local recording studio of the time, and he used to give me the uh, American imports. This was wonderful. These were oh, 45s wow. with the big hole in the middle. Yep. You know, it had a big spindle, yeah. not the narrow spindle like you put a bit of vinyl on now. They had the big hole in the middle, and uh, I had the hit, you know, I had Elvis Presley hits before they were even thought of in Australia. So we were able to, uh, you know, actually rearrange that, we'll arrange, make an arrangement locally and get somebody to sing that song. But the, the idea of uh, of the studio orchestra redoing popular songs of, of the moment, it doesn't seem that different to, uh, say, uh, young people in the studio singing popular songs of the, of the moment. No, a it, they, Idol. Absolutely. And, it's cover, it was cover versions, but this was the only way, unless you were, you know, uh, had a radio station that had started the Top 40 format and were able to pay for those American imports, uh, this was the only way to get those songs on the air. By uh, doing cover versions, as you say. And so w- when you went from radio to television, how were you regarded in in the industry? Was was it a, a reputable move or was it a... Oh, a, yes, a, definitely a reputable move. I mean, it, uh, television was a big deal and anybody doing... I mean, where did people come from to go on television when it first started? They came from mostly from radio, mm-hmm. some from newspapers and from nowhere. That's where they came from. And what what we were doing on radio when television started, you were simply expected to do it on television too. Mm-hmm. Yep. It wasn't a big... It was a glamorous thing, but it wasn't for those of us in the industry that glamorous. I can remember a, a fellow at uh, 3DB who was at the time. Uh, 3DB doesn't exist now, but it was a reputable commercial station owned by the Herald Sun. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they the brought Channel 7 on. Yep. And they were down in Dorker Street, South Melbourne. And he was a newsreader. Jeff McComas was his name. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeff's still around. And Jeff was the manager of the station and also the senior newsreader. He used to tell me that he'd be rostered to do the news at 3DB on the radio station from, say, noon until 4pm. And then his roster would read, 4pm, Dorker Street for the 6 o'clock news. And he'd walk down, get on the tram, <laughs> go down in his own suit, <laughs> no suit supplied, and read the 6 o'clock news. And that's the way it was. And pretty we much, were just expected to do those things. And know? pretty much do it the way he was doing it exactly on radio, just well, in front of a camera. It was just radio with pictures. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and you've also spent your time uh, as, uh, as a newsreader as well? You're a newsreader I did a Adelaide. stint of newsreading in, uh, actually in Melbourne. I did the newsreading okay. in Melbourne, but uh, I did a Tonight Show in Adelaide for a while. Oh, until that's, uh, getting those that was, oh, that's all right. That's <laughs> all just grist for the mill after all these years. It's sort of, you know. Way, way left. I've left it a long way behind. But you know, in those days, it's interesting because in the early days of television, if you were watching a news bulletin, the newsreader really did. This is not to take anything away from my mate Pete from Peter Hitchner and Nine News and that. But in those days, the newsreader carried most of the bulletin because there were very few moving pictures mm. I and, mean, and no auto cue. Well, no, and no auto cue either. But where were you going to get those pictures from? Certainly, they came came in from overseas, but there was no satellite to bring them in. 
you know, they had to be flown in, which sort of dated the material a bit. So the newsreaders, you know, that medium close-up, shoulder, head and shoulder shot, was on there for the bulk of the 30 minutes, carrying most... So it was really a radio news bulletin. So and and at that time when newsreels still still popular, yeah, in the newsreel newsreels w- took a few years to be crushed completely off the entertainment scene, but television finally put paid to that too. But you know it was a big deal when I was a kid going to the movies. Now take the Melbourne Cup for instance. There was uh, quite a few different news uh, newsreels, mm-hmm. but one local one was the Sydney Sound Review. Another was Movie Tone, the Fox Movie Tone News Australian edition, done in Sydney, and. For an instance, on uh, uh, Melbourne Cup Day, when would you see the Melbourne Cup run? Where would you see it run? Well, there was no television. So prior to TV, you'd see it on the Thursday night after the Tuesday running of the Cup, rushed to your local Hoyt Suburban (laughs) Theatre. And they'd have about three or four prints of the Cup, black and white, of course, Mm -hmm. and uh, they'd be raced round by motorbike round the whole Hoyt's entertainment circuit in Melbourne and in Sydney too. And so if you were lucky enough, you might see it just before they played God Save the the King or God Save the Queen (laughs) or whatever it was. So they really worked those four or five prints that they made. And And it was a big deal, you know, to go along and see the Melbourne Cup only two days after it was run. And so then uh, how, how did that time frame translate to, to television in those days? When could you see the Melbourne Cup on television? Could you see it next day? Oh, I think so. Oh, no, I think you'd see it that night. Okay. You'd see it that night because although videotape uh, came in in the early 60s, uh, prior to that, uh, and, and in fact after, a long time after videotape came in, news uh, cameramen were still using film. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, the Cinevex company at Channel 9, for instance, a complete floor uh, below the newsroom, just duping and processing black and white film for the news and for magazine programs. And, you know, sometimes there'd be something happening. It might be a fire or a, a bad smash somewhere, and uh, they'd bring the film in just as they do now with videotape, except, of course, they don't even bother with videotape. They just wind up the uh, the dish and the receiver and bounce it off a building in Melbourne and down into Channel 9 in Richmond, and they get the pictures that way. They don't even have to leave the location. As you, you know, you see the live eye stuff. But in those days, sometimes if it was rushed for a 6 or 6.30 bulletin, rushed back to Channel 9 physically, had to go into the processor, of course, and movie film had to be processed. And, and I don't know what, the, I'm not technically minded, but it obviously it took a certain amount of time. But, you know, very often well, it wouldn't be a rarity that that film would go into the projector for the news wet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wouldn't even have time to dry it. And it would wow. run through the machine wet. Now, okay, it sounds pretty crappy these days, but, uh, you know, that was, for, a, that was part of the, the romance. Yeah. That's part of the romance. And now you say, what's changed in television? Well, of course, videotape revolutionised everything, just as the video disc has as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, the tape, the fact that you could tape something, because prior to taping something, everything was, on, uh, you know, just on film, black and white film, in what was called a kinescope process, mm-hmm. which was really just a camera pointing at a prism and then into, into the, uh, the cine camera and uh, locked off. But it was very inferior and nothing like you might see uh, a classic 
black and white movie these days in a theatre or on your uh, DVD. It was nothing to, 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 you know, approaching that quality. It looked as though it was all grainy, even though it was brand new. And that's why so many of the radio greats, <coughs> excuse me, never made it onto television because it looked so dated. Now when you see Ed Phillips doing Temptation at 7 o'clock at night, pardon the plug, but when you see that... <laughs> It's indistinguishable to live, such as the technical quality of it. Yes. But back in those days when Bob Dyer took his radio hit, uh, Pick a Box, onto television, and we have every copy of that. Do you know that? Every copy. Did what? I... Uh Twang something then? It's it's quite possible. It might have been my moustache. That's what uh, <laughs> that, that's what separates Channel Nine from the ABC. Clearly, oh, <laughs> or the BBC with uh, Doctor Who. Yes. Uh, Kinescope re- reminds me of a, a an interesting story about uh, Lucille Ball and, and Desi Arnaz uh, when uh, when they were setting up Desi Lou and they wanted to produce their show on the west coast of the US right. and uh, and of course everything had to go live for the East Coast and then uh, was rebroadcast uh, on the West Coast because the East Coast was three hours earlier. And they did not want to move to New York, absolutely not. Uh, Mm. And because of that, they started the trend of taping... uh, The shows. The shows on... Sorry, of filming the shows onto onto film. Oh, okay. So they would pre-record the shows onto film, wouldn't have to go live. The film could be... Uh, edited, edited and fine tuned, yeah. And then oh, that's uh, interesting. And then and then shown, but because they they were adamant that it would not be shown in kinescope anywhere. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so anyway, yeah. well, I mean, even today in the states now, you know, that's why the Oscars, that's why the Academy Awards go early in mm. Los Angeles, you know, and all that sort of thing because they've got to get. And it's interesting, you know, with shows like David Letterman and so forth. Uh, if you ever see. Uh, one of those shows in America, say you're in the Midwest somewhere in a little television station, that's why the band, a friend of mine went and saw the show, and in fact when Johnny Carson was on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the band plays right, the band's there, and you think, well, why is the band there? They didn't even have a singer on tonight, but the band's there playing live right through the breaks, and they've just got a slide up, because a lot of the little television stations in the American Midwest cannot fill the network amount of time, the four minutes that they go away for commercial breaks. So they're sitting there on a slide with the band playing live and, the, and then they know when to come back in. It's it's, uh, it, so it's, that time imbalance has yeah. been a problem forever, I think. Which, uh, which we never really had here in, in Australia. No, it? it's not. Well, I, think, I don't think it's mattered so much because, although this is not uh, an official... <coughs> A statement from a television but, executive. But the you're fact that no one cares well, about Perth. Well, you, you said it. You said it. Absolutely. You're right. You're right. We haven't had to worry. No. The, uh, now, probably one of the, the things I want to hear most about, uh, just because I wasn't around to experience these, these times, uh, IMT with Graham Kennedy in Melbourne Tonight. Uh, we do see the, the Graham Kennedy DVDs, and you were you were part of the ensemble. I was a small part of the yeah. I was part of the ensemble. I mean, when I first went to Channel Nine in '64, that's 1964, <laughs> boys. Uh, there were nine full-time booth announcers. Really, nine full-time booth announcers because everything was live. Every commercial break carried live reads by mm-hmm. right. just the same as you guys are sitting here now, and with slides changing. And then slowly, when videotape came in, it started pushing those out. They started, you know, redefining them, uh, making them more sophisticated, putting them onto videotape, and that took the live element out. And so finally it got down to the stage where 
I was the only one left, you know. But those nine time, those nine full-time booth announcers, people like Jeff Cork, Hal Todd, myself, Philip Brady, Bert was even on, Bert Newton was on the uh, announcer's roster, though his, of course his fame was much higher than mine. Uh, but we all did our stint in the booth live. Then we'd have to rush down and maybe do a comedy sketch with Graham or a commercial, a live commercial. You know, I think the record was 14 live commercials in, in Melbourne tonight, one night. Really? And I think the record for time was when Graham did a pal dog food ad with Rover the Wonder Dog, his beautiful golden Labrador, and I think that ran, I don't hold me to it, I think it was 25 and a half minutes. <laughs> but you see, those ads, especially the ones that Graham and Bert used to do, the, the cell component... And the entertainment component was smudged. Yes. And there were no regulations as to how long it should be. So, of course, that's what those programs were built on. But you can imagine being in that sort of environment, coming across from the, you know, the, uh, the confined cloisters of the ABC to five nights a week fly by the seat of your pants live variety, because that's what it was. Mm. Uh, it was quite something. I mean, uh, Graham was doing four nights, and the Friday night was more of a... A theatrical uh, show. It was a more of an artistic in Melbourne tonight, and it was compared by a guy called Noel Ferrier. In his very mm. large wicker chair. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, you boys, you've done your research. <laughs> and I can see that wicker chair still today. I think it's still down there. Mary Hardy, of course, was in that, and Freddie Parslow. And these were theatricals. These were really legitimate performers. Because, as I said, when television started, we came, people came from everywhere, but very few were professionals. And that's why we learnt so much from the likes of people like Johnny Ladd, who was the uh, comedy producer for Graham Kennedy for so many years, and uh, Freddie Parsons, who uh, uh, was a lovely man who uh, had a terrible stuttering problem. But he was the dearest man, and he was Roy Reen Moe's chief comedy writer at the Tivoli. Right. And Graham, when the Tivoli era finished and television killed all that live variety era out of those uh, venues like the Plaza Northcote here in Melbourne and Theatre Royal in Sydney and all the major capitals had their own big theatre, you know, vaudeville houses where variety played out. Uh, well, uh, Graham got uh, Freddie Parsons to come over and he can, and a lot of those sketches that you may see now on DVD and stuff and in retrospectives are really old uh, TIV, show, TIV comedy sketches. Because Converted, it, you know. Did, what was the... Uh, was there an arrangement between the Tivoli and, and Channel 9? Because Channel 9 also had the Tivoli dancers. Well, uh, no, we had our own dancers. Uh, I mean, I mentioned nine full-time booth announcers. There were 300 people working on in Melbourne tonight. Can you imagine that? 300 <laughs> people working on one show, and most of those people were on the staff. Not, not casual. They were on the staff. There was another 20-piece orchestra there, full-time orchestra. There were 12 ballet dancers Dancers, boys and girls, on the staff. <laughs> there were eight vocalists, chorus. Sorry, that's me with my chin on the <laughs> microphone. But uh, yeah, can you imagine that? I mean, that was. I mean, I was too young for the Tivoli era. I mean, I, remember, I saw Roy Reen at the Tiv. It's one of my everlasting memories. And I must have been, I don't know, eleven or twelve when my mum and dad took me along. I used to go to the pantomimes because the uh, the evening stars used to in school holidays used to do the pantomimes in the daytime. And then they do the adult show at night with the nudes and everything, you know. Oh, that's my most enduring memory. 
<laughs> and your, you know, your your audience would think, oh, the silly old cow, you know, the dinosaur. But you know, can you imagine no television variety going along to the Tivoli and seeing these wonderful comedians, you know, Jim Gerald and George Wallace and Roy Reen, marvelous. And then you know the variety, the dancers, as you say, the Tivoli dancers, wonderful. And then there would be the famous Tivoli nudes. And I mean, that was an... Ex- Can you imagine a kid of 11 or 12 his first outing in the evening and being taken out at night to see a big adult show at the Tivoli? And here were these beautiful alabaster bodies graced along the proscenium arch. The, the ballet dancing all around, but by law, the nudes had to remain completely stock still. Did you know that? That was no. by legislation, yes. They were allowed to appear nude, but they had to remain completely stock still while the ballet danced around. It was only in later years that the nudes were allowed to move, but the audience had to sit stock still. <laughs> oh, memories, so, memories. So, hang on, I, I, I do want to get this back to television. But yes, I'm sorry. Look, I have But the, I've been distracted uh, by nudes. <laughs> did, so completely nude, not pasties? Did they? Oh, I think they probably had something on down below. But God, for a boy of twelve, and you, well, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know what I mean. It's it was wonderful. As you wonderful. told me to imagine it, and that's just what well, I've been doing. That's <laughs> the only thing I, I don't have much of a memory, but that memory sticks. In my mind. <laughs> wonderful. So sorry, Pete. You were you were about to say. Uh, I, I don't know, you raised your hand and went, well... Oh, I, did I? Oh, no, I didn't mean to. No, uh, I just I raised no. my hand a lot, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think you started with, I've got. Have, have you got... Oh, yeah, oh, no, we were just... When you talk about Kennedy, and it brings it all back to me, and, and you know, uh, at the moment they've done this movie on yes. Graham, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know what sort of a job they've made of it, but, uh, you know, from what I've heard from people who've seen bits and pieces of it, they've done a good job. I mean, where do you start and where do you finish? If it was done in America, I suppose they do a real hatchet job, but my memories of Graham are uh, very happy memories, you know, uh, just fun memories, because uh, if anybody could make you laugh, Graham and Bert too could make you laugh just from nothing, you know, just sitting here with you. And, and, I, and, I, and I was looking through some old, throwing out some old cassettes. Remember cassettes? <laughs> Audi- domestic cassettes, as they call them, <laughs> audio cassettes. And I came across this one, GK's World, uh, GK's World of Comedy. And I put it on and I thought, I said, what's all this? And it happened to be, you know, Graham had a reputation in his later years when he moved up to Sydney and did the movies, the Don's Parties and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And he did Coast to Coast for Channel 9, which mm-hmm. was a news show. Uh, and all that sort of stuff, uh, he sort of started to get a bit, quite a bit reclusive. I mean, Graham always liked his own company. And you can imagine, you know, the people will look into this until their dying day, I suppose, when you talk about Graham Kennedy. But can you imagine a 17-year-old turntable operator thrust to stardom on radio with Nicky on 3UZ as it was mm. then up in Burke Street and then going on to television and becoming an instant star... Uh, can you just imagine the defence mechanism? You'd put that barrier... Everybody would come up want to know you. Everybody would want to be your best friend. And I think Graham put this barrier up and it just became bigger and bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. you know? Because in those days, believe you me, even a little supporting player like me, if you were on there for 10 seconds, everybody would know about it the next day because it was a novelty. People were watching. I'm not saying we were doing anything classic... But it was a fact that this thing was brand new. I mean, when's the next 
revolution going to come in? I mean, I suppose podcasts, but uh, it's sort of only an extension of something that's been before. But television. Anyone who listens to this show knows that there's there's no revolution. (laughs) And it's nothing with that kind of focus. I I don't think that there's there's the capacity for the population to focus like that. Yeah, Mm. so, you know, without making excuse for the way Graham was, you know, he did like his own company and he did become very reclusive. And uh, in the end, uh, friends of mine who were kept in much more constant touch than I were just sending faxes and Graham would send a fax back mm-hmm. and even for some of his movie roles he'd just write on it nil interest and send it back and he had a stamp made nil interest <laughs> he did and he'd just put it back in the machine and fax it back to them and you might think well this it's bloody rude but this was Graham but and that's why to my delight when he moved up to Sydney and finally, you know, settled into the farm, he had a little disc jockey set up made for him. I don't know who did it, but some friend must have done it up for him so he could play his records because he loved musical comedy and stuff, you know. He really saw himself as a musical comedy man and, you know, taking another... Uh, another direction he could have been a musical comedy star I reckon he always wanted to do how to succeed in business without really trying and if you see Robert Morse in that film version Mm. of the stage show you can see that Graham could easily have settled into a role like that Uh, but uh, imagine my surprise and I'm looking through these tapes and I you know because as I say you didn't get a phone call from Graham every other day or even a letter Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, imagine I go through these tapes and I hear this. Pete and Jackie. By Jingo, it's easier to play radio stations at home these days, I can tell you. So anyway, it goes on from there and into a lot of personal stuff and that, but this is the sort of thing he'd do for you, you know, and he knew <laughs> I loved themes and things, so that's the old theme, G but you swell, which Graham heard on a Jack Parr show when he went to America once and loved it and it became the theme for In Melbourne Tonight over a certain period. And so he just sat in his uh, home studio and, and, and made radio shows for you? No, well, he did it <laughs> on that occasion. I don't think he sat there all the time doing that. He might have <laughs> done it for other people, but imagine my pleasant surprise yeah. when from out of nowhere I find this thing over there was just are going to chuck out. Yeah. And here's Graham talking to my wife and I, you know, and mm. uh, you know, it just brought it all back to me. Yeah. Because, you see, so many, and, you know, there are quite a few of us still around, even though we're getting worn and torn, there are quite a few of us still around who are on those shows. There's Bert doing, you know, Family Feud at Channel 9 and I do his warm-ups and while he's there, believe you me, the spirit of what Graham and Bert and a lot of them put on in those days is still very much alive and well at Channel 9. Well, speaking of that spirit, uh, how do you, uh, with all those memories, how do you respond to the rumours that they're thinking of selling selling up Bendigo Street, Channel 9? I mean, I, that must I, be, that I, must be I, I think sad. those rumours have been going for, 
I just I think they're just rumours that have been okay. going for, and, and you know that could come to pass. Who knows? I mean, uh, everything uh, everything is in a state of change. We've been there a long, long time, and you know there's something about change. If there is. It, it would be a, a big uh, disappointment if yeah, it be was a sold. Huge loss. But uh, the thing is that they're in the uh, business of making entertainment and television programs and fantasy, and you can really do it from anywhere if you've got the right material. Look at uh, One Versus a Hundred. You know, it's being done out of the Docklands because it's so huge. Mm. That's set because that's what's called for. So we go there and we do that. Mm-hmm. A lot of the reality programs now, obviously, you're not going to do them in the studio. You go to where people are. Mm. And so it changes. But I must say, people who come to Channel 9, whether they come to work or whether they come just to visit, do sense something that you just can't put your finger on. Uh, a lot of people that I worked with on those shows, and I said there's still a few around, still alive and kicking, who've been away from 9 for a long time, uh, I'm very privileged because I still walk down the ramp in that old soup factory, that old piano factory as it was, converted to a soup factory and then into a television station. I still walk down that ramp past Studio One where we used to do our comedy rehearsals in the afternoon with Graham. That's the first thing that kicked off the show each day. And uh, for me, uh, it's never gone away. I could have walked down there this afternoon. I could walk down there tomorrow and walk in and just pick up the script and go through a new comedy sketch or revamp one and uh, so it's been a rare privilege for me now, to, talking, uh, to never have been away talking mm. about uh, the comedy rehearsals uh, is it true that uh, everything that uh, graham kennedy did was really tightly scripted including the ad libs oh no i don't think so i don't know where i read that somewhere or somebody said it somewhere but i don't believe that for a moment i mean we used to uh, certainly re- rehearse the comedy sketches because, of course, cameras, uh, di- the director had to get cameras in mm. position and didn't want to miss sight gags and things that happened in the comedy sketch. Mm-hmm. So obviously we had to rehearse it. But what was done in a four-minute script or four- or five-minute script at 3.30 in the afternoon, do you think that had any semblance whatsoever <laughs> with what went on at 20 past 10 at night? Nothing to do with it. And that was the most scary thing of all because Graham was completely in control and we were all, you know, even if you were just dressed as a Roman centurion and had to open a castle door at the right moment, don't open it on the laugh, you know, just wait. You know, you had to, and, you, and is he going to change it? You just don't know. <laughs> and so this was, oh, it was nerve-wracking. Young enough then and I could take it. And so, so when you uh, when you see live television now, uh, Rove Live and uh, and other shows, and you you're part of uh, the Degeneration Live shows uh, as well on uh, on the ABC. Do you think uh, do you think they live up to that uh, that standard that was set by IMT? I do because uh, the people you mentioned, uh, whether it's Rove or uh, Mick Malloy and Tony Martin and all those guys, uh, they grew up watching some of that stuff. And loving it. For some reason, they just did, and it stuck. Whether they looked at it, whether they were told to go to bed or whatever it was and look through at that flickering picture through a crack in the door when they were supposed to be in bed, whatever it was, it's something stuck with them. And that's why they uh, occasionally, uh, you know, use a silly old bugger like me, (laughs) I guess. Pete, I I would love to have you sit here and tell us stories of... of Because we've, we've still only gotten up to... 1960. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've railroaded you a bit, you know, but I, yeah, cause I, I brought a lot of preparation in here, you know. I mean, the first five TV commercials, it's, I spotted this the other day. I couldn't believe it. What would you say would be one of the first five commercial 
commercials on television in Australia, when it all began? Soap. Soap? You know, that's a good answer, but it wasn't one of the first five. I'll no, tell you what the first ve- five ve- are. I'll tell you what the first... Veg- Vegemites, that is another excellent answer, <laughs> and it would have been there somewhere along the line, like aeroplane jelly and stuff, mm-hmm. but it wasn't one of the first five. Do you want to know what the five were? And this Please. is Richie Ditch. The first one was Rothman's King Size Cigarettes. The second one was Pepsi Cola. They had the jump on Coke at that time. Really? Coke's ah. another one that had been very, very prominent. Take that, Ross. <laughs> Pepsi, more Australian than Coke. Doesn't make it taste Get onto better. this one. Golden Cobb Canary Seed. <laughs> Golden Cobb Canary Seed. I don't think it's any longer in existence. Right, that, that I ad- certainly don't have it on my muesli. I can <laughs> that, that ad clearly didn't work for me. Well, uh, maybe not. Uh, but I mean, this is going back, you know, a long way. This is going back to 56, 57 when it started in Sydney at TCN. I know, but Pete, if, if I don't remember it, then nobody <laughs> What about audiophone hearing aids? <laughs> they lasted well, didn't they? Yes. And Vincent's powders and tablets. I think they might still be there. You know, did you ever remember? You would be like too Bex? young. Yeah, like a Bex. Take a Bex and a cup of tea and a good lie good down one. and all that stuff. Yeah, no, Vincent's powders and tablets. You opened the little pack up and stuck your tongue on the powder. Well, I think they're doing that around the corner today, aren't they? Good on you guys. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks well, we, we so need, much. We need uh, Ed Phillips here to uh, to give you the thinking music before we ask if you if you'll come back sometime. Love to. We love to come back. In fact, uh, we've we've had uh, Ed on the show a, a couple of times via the telephone. I think it'd be amazing to have both Ed and Pete here, <laughs> and uh, and finally they can square off and we'll see uh, you know which one comes out alive. Oh, well, Ed's another one that, uh, as young as he is, appreciates uh, like you guys. Obviously, uh, you know, even though you weren't part of that era, it's terrific that you have an appreciation for what that's all about. Because really, we were just there to make people laugh, to give them a bit of entertainment, to show them a bit of fantasy, and really, the shows that are working today do just that whether they're live or on tape. Mm. Well, Pete, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming in and talking to us. It's uh, Pleasure, it's, guys. It's fantastic. Box cutters, keep on keeping on. <laughs> Pete Smith speaking. G'day, you're listening to Ed Phillips here from Temptation across the Nine Network, and I am special guest of the Box Cutters. Love the guys' show. Love all three of you. God, you're funny. Never miss a show, and sometimes if I do, they make tapes of it on the internet and then send it to me. I'm still a little bit in awe. In awe of Mr. Pete Smith. He's fantastic. He is. He's looking looking forward to having him back already. Yes, mm. but I'll uh, I'll try very hard to get on with the rest of the show. Yes, yes. Well, I've got a uh, review of a new NBC show called Reigns. Now, is this replacing the Black Donnellys? Or is this no, different time I slot? I think this is no, a different time slot Studio altogether. 60's got to go back into that time <laughs> oh, slot. Oh, no, that's right. No, there's a, a reality show, the the real... Real Wedding Crashes. Wedding Crashes. Yeah, no. Uh, Reigns opens with a fantastic shot. It's a very slow track in uh, just outside a Hollywood mansion with this fabulous pool that overlooks the Hollywood Hills. You can see the, uh, the Hollywood sign off to the left. Uh, but unfortunately, there's a dead body by the side of the pool and there's lots of police running around in slow-mo. And a very jazzy soundtrack kind of starts up, very kind of trumpet-heavy, slow, noiry type jazz. And in a voiceover, Reigns explains to us that perhaps he read too much Raymond Chandler when he was growing up. And uh, perhaps that's why, you know, he's got this idea that 
there's something mysterious and fantastic about murder scenes and the guy on the ground's probably a Hollywood producer or perhaps a movie starlet and somebody walks past very close in front of the camera and when we see the body again it's switched to this beautiful woman lying by the pool. But unfortunately, Reigns tells us that's not reality. Cut to a modern day car park, woman lying dead having been shot in the back. And that uh, that shot kind of kind of sums up Reigns which which will make more sense the further I go with this review. Uh, Michael Rains is a quirky LAPD detective played by uh, Jeff Goldblum. Ooh, oh, excellent. And uh, he has one major difference to most other detectives. And He's that tall. is that he sees dead people. Ah. Kind of in a Haley Joel Osman medium kind of way, but there's one major difference. The dead people he sees he is fully aware that they're in his head. He knows that they're just figments of his imagination that he is seeing from helping, uh, from solving the crimes. So he can't trust anything they say about it was that guy? Well, they don't help him. They can't help him at all. Mm. They're just there while he tries to solve the crime. So a bit like uh, the Six Feet Under ghosts. I can't really remember what which, the Six Which Feet was under. like a reflection of, of what was going on through the boys' lives. Yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. A bit more, a bit more like that. Certainly more like that than the type of ghosts who say, "Avenge my death," blah blah blah. Uh, and as as a result, I hate so, those but, ones. They're always around. <laughs> very yeah, la- lackluster ghosts. <laughs> I saw one just the other day. Avenge my death, blah blah. <laughs> if you can't be bothered, I can't be bothered. Uh, and as such, the uh, the ghosts actually change their appearance as the show goes on and as he learns more facts about them. Uh, for example, a young girl looks very wholesome and beautiful, but then Rain finds out that she was a hooker, so she gets all tarted up. Then he finds out she's a hooker with a heart of gold. <laughs> she goes back to being wholesome again. As, is he schizophrenic? Uh, is that, is that at, at any stage addressed in the show? Is this just Fight Club? No, no, no. He's fully aware. They talk about it quite a bit. He's fully aware that he's that he's seeing dead people. He, he's not sure. He, the, the technical term they use in the show is nuts. Right. <laughs> so I, I think I think schizophrenics looking a little deeper than perhaps a scriptwriter. A scriptwriter. Uh, no, he's he's nuts. Uh, so. Reigns is really kind of a modern noir. It's it's really stylish. It, every shot, it just looks fantastic. And uh, as always with a lot of dramas these days, the show House casts its uh, rather impressive shadow over this show. You can really see the influence of House in how Reigns deals with his underlings and how he deals with members of the public. Because he's grumpy but brilliant. Yeah, it, it's very similar. It's and, very much. Got and he that. limps. Does he limp? No, he doesn't limp. Does he ride a motorbike? No. Uh, but uh, Reigns has one major problem, and that is that it's really not very good. Oh. It's uh, the, the, the twist that, that with the dead people, it's not all that much different from shows like Medium, which has done it much, much better before. And, in fact, it's not much different to kind of most crime scene shows. Ghost Whisperer. Yeah. But I assume he doesn't look as hot. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends. I'm sure people would think he looks hotter. Okay. Not me. Uh, and the uh, the whole 
the whole ghosts changing appearance, you know, with it, with him getting more information about them, it's it's completely overdone and completely over the top. It kind of dominates the whole show. Uh, unfortunately, this is very very predictable. You you, you can kind of see where every everything is going right from the start, and it borders quite often on the ridiculous. Uh, there's one scene in an episode I watched of it where they hand the mayor a picture of himself, and he looks at the picture and goes, "Who is that?" Oh my God, it's me! And bursts into tears. When, I mean, there's no reason for him not to recognise a picture of himself unless he, unless there was like a year-long period where he didn't look at himself in the mirror. I think it's <laughs> it's, it's a fair bet that he'd recognise himself. Uh, Jeff Goldblum's quite good, but, you know, we've seen it all before. It's, it's, it's not that different from his Dr. Malcolm from Jurassic Park or his David Levinson from Independence Day. It's, so it's, is he the geeky, creepy... Guy. Has he got a girlfriend? No, no. Because uh, he creeps out the girls? Uh, not so much creeps them out, but just is... Uh, He's too obsessed about his work. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But but it's not the excellent Jeff Goldblum we saw in uh, in the Larry Sanders show or... No. Big right. chill? No. So, uh, look, this is, this is watchable, I guess, if you want to fill some time, but uh, I don't think it's any surprise that it's a mid-season replacement. Oh, that's a shame. Because hmm. it sounded so good when you were explaining it originally. Well, that opening shot was fantastic. Can I say, and R- then it goes. Ross, that's the worst pitch I've ever. <laughs> <laughs> the opening shot's fantastic, and then it goes into this car park shot, and you think, "Oh, this is great." Now it's not so good, oh. and that's kind of what the whole show's like. Okay. All right, we uh, won't see that here anytime soon. Hey, this is James Talia, and you're listening to the spot where you can find out everything good, bad, and otherwise on your box. It's the box cutters. And we've just run out of Channel 9 personalities to uh, play cards off. Uh, surely not. <laughs> I think we have. I think we have. I wanted Tom to talk Elliott's about... done so. Sunday. Oh, Business Sunday. okay. Well, yeah. that'll, that'll be right. next. Yep. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, Lifestyle Food, which is a, a channel that, when it first started, I thought, ah, I'm sure, it, you know, if I've got 20 minutes to kill or something, I'll go and watch a, watch a recipe be made and then never make that recipe ever again. And, uh, and, and then... Somewhere along the lines, I found a show that I loved. It's called Top Chef, and it is a competition. It's a game show. It's a reality game show. They start with 12 chefs, and they have cook-offs, challenges. Fry-ups. Fry-ups. And, uh, and then at the, end of, uh, at the end of every episode, one, uh, one chef leaves. And they whittle it down until the, the last chef remains and they get $100,000 to go towards their next restaurant. And, it's Australian uh, Chef Idol. Uh, oh, I love well, these. Well, it's not Australian. It's, it's American. I love these. You know, like with The Bachelor where they give the roses? I bet you they give, like, chef's hats to everyone uh, who's coming back. Is that right? No. Oh, really? No. It's, in fact, they... Instead, they cut they the fingers off. Spatulas. With, they have the special knives and they cut their fingers off. They have... Because uh, they have a panel of judges. No, and that's Australia's next top Yakuza. <laughs> <laughs> they have a, a, a panel of judges and uh, and the judges decide on someone to, to go home and then just call them in and the, the host says, please pack your knives and go. Oh. And yeah, it's, it's, that's a bit of a clunker. I'm not sure and you want to be giving people that are getting booted out a bunch of sharp knives. No, no, you're not giving it to them. Every chef no, no, has their own like, set of like knives. Like giving them access to their own knives. Oh, no, a completely different room. They have to go back into the kitchen and uh, pack their knives. That'd be like and the go. Avenger ghost death. They'd go, I'm going to kill those... Ah, oh, he can be bothered. Now, <laughs> one of the great things about, uh, about Top Chef in the first season was the host because she was just abominable. 
like a more talentless vacuum of uh, strange face, untalented ridiculousness you've never seen before on television. And uh, and the the final words of the episode where she would tell the chef that they had lost would sound something like, Brian, please pack your knives and go. <laughs> and she would talk like that, like like this automaton. It's Fran and- Drescher. <laughs> <laughs> no, but all all on one tone, single tone, and not as not as affected as Fran Drescher. Just there's there's nothing to it except it's annoying, and you wouldn't want it as a ringtone. And only teenagers can hear. The uh, <laughs> so she was she was replaced at the end of last season with uh, with a. Uh, Someone who actually has cooking experience. Uh, her name is uh, Padma Laksami or Lakshmi. Padma. Padma Lakshmi, and uh, she uh, she is incongruously and ridiculously married to Salman Rushdie. Uh, and I say incongruously and, and ridiculously because she's really good looking. Right. <laughs> Him not so much. Uh, so, uh, so she hosts it, and she's she's not bad. Uh, the uh, the two judges are Tom Caliccio, who uh, has started and run his own restaurants, and Gail Simmons, who is the very sexy editor of Food and Wine magazine. Wow! And uh, they uh, they basically observe the chefs during their challenges. It's very hard for me to talk about what a great show it is, though, because there is something about. Top Chef, and I watch it every week, and I absolutely love it. That just gels. I mean, the, the idea of chefs who, by their very nature, are arrogant and want to have the kitchen all to themselves, getting them to either work together in challenges or compete against each other in challenges, or having to share utensils or having to, to share a, a, a workspace, you just get these explosions of, of drama. So, They've got fantastic drama. Sometimes the chefs make excellent dishes that you look at and you go, mm, I wouldn't mind some of that now. And, uh, and it, it's really inventive and, and clever. As, as far as reality game shows go, uh, it's one of the easiest to watch, I find. Uh, plus, there, there isn't any of that ridiculous pausing that we get in, in so many of them. Especially uh, like in Survivor, one of the things that I just don't care about is what happens when they're at camp. Most of the time, I don't, I don't give. A sh- I just want to watch. I just want to watch the challenges. Top Chef starts with a short challenge. They've got thirty minutes to whip up something quickly, and we see like five minutes of that, uh, and then they're graded at the end of that, and then it goes straight from that short challenge into the elimination challenge. So the whole show, aside from the judging bits, is challenges, which I, I think is a, a fantastic thing. Compare that to Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay, which has just started on Lifestyle Food. This is one of the worst pieces of television I've seen <laughs> in a long time. They have 20 chefs. They pair off. They split up into uh, two teams of 10, a, a red team and a blue team. They're both working in the kitchen of a restaurant. Uh, there are blue tables and red tables, and so they get orders for their tables. And the whole time, Gordon Ramsay is just screaming at them, which ordinarily I find really entertaining. I think he's a great television chef, Gordon Ramsay. He's also a a very good chef, generally. But this is just... It's kind of like 
you couldn't be too competent a chef to be on Hell's Kitchen because there'd be nothing for Ramsay to scream at you about. So they get kind of the uh, the B team as their contestants. So there's nothing to wonder about. No, no beauty in the in the things that they're creating. So everything that the Food Channel really uh, caters for, which is porn in the form of food doesn't come to come to life in hell's kitchen so i wouldn't recommend that but top chef definitely that's on 8 30 wednesday nights on lifestyle food and hell's kitchen is on friday nights 8 30 we really didn't go down a thing for this very quick quote uh we've had a lot of love for channel nine in the studio today so uh this this might uh, this might diminish it somewhat. A uh, very quick quote from uh, Len Downs, the head of programming at Channel Nine. This came out of this week's Green Guide. Uh, there was an article about ratings and uh, and the viewing habits of different nights of the week. And uh, he said, it's the programming that uh, determines viewing levels. If you have a program that's hot on Sunday nights and you move it to Wednesday nights, they'll follow that. If a program is attractive. People will watch it. Now, just off the top of my head, I can think of two people who would disagree with that strongly, being uh, Don Burke and Jamie Jury. Backyard Blitz was doing fantastically for Channel 9 at 6.30 on Sunday nights last year, where it was a solid winner. They moved it pointlessly to 7.30 on a Friday night, where it was up against and regularly beaten by Better Homes and Gardens. By the time they moved it back to 6.30 on a Sunday night, the damage had been done. So uh, I, I, whenever I get a quote from one of these Channel 9 programmers, and particularly Led, uh, Len Downs, I think it should be in the, uh, in the voice of God, like the ratings in- intro. Yes. Like, there's just this kind of condescending arrogance. We're the big programmer. You're just the viewer. You don't understand. We make the decisions. We make the hits. It's very complicated. Yeah, yeah. If I can, uh, if I can borrow a term from last week's Australia's Next Top Model, mm-hmm. what a wank stain. <laughs> hey, um, when I cast my pod, it's with the box cutters in mind. Box cutters, pod, cast, done. Pork is on the table. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. What too. a huge show! What a, I could do it again. I've, I've just fired up. <laughs> you just popped some pills. Uh, something I didn't get to cover in news, nor to bring out with Pete Smith. Um, but uh, I assume he would have worked with Kevin Crease, who uh, passed away this week. An um, Adelaide TV person. Adelaide TV was the first face on Adelaide TV, uh, and had been a Channel Nine newsreader uh, for ever. For the last 48 years, I believe. Um, died at 71 from a serious form of cancer. Oh, he used to absent mm. friends. Mm. That's really brought the tone down, <laughs> hasn't it, Brad? <laughs> I just wanted to mention quickly, uh, we reviewed Life on Mars a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it has finished now in the UK. It uh, had a fantastic final episode during the week, which was... Uh, uh, yeah, fantastic. Everything it should have been. They are, they're just going to stick with those two seasons, that 16 episodes. They're not making any more. But they are doing a spin-off story, a uh, spin-off series called Ashes to Ashes, which is uh, another David Bowie song. And this one's going to be set in the early 80s, and it's going to focus on DCI Hunt. Oh, fantastic. 
So that'll be worth uh, worth catching. And, of course, Life on Mars is getting remade for the American market, written by David E. Kelly. I think uh, we mentioned yeah, yeah, that Life on Boston Yes, a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, fans of Jackie Chan will want to get their hands on a new Chinese reality show that he's going to be doing. Uh, in English or in... I don't... I don't know. The, the whole thing's being done in Hong Kong and Beijing. Uh, it's going to be called The Disciple... And he's basically looking for the next Jackie Chan. He's looking for the next Kung Fu action hero. And uh, and he's got 100,000 contestants to get through. Uh, he's going to end up with 10 on the show. Uh, they're all going to be in a Jackie Chan-produced film at some stage that's going to be released in 2008. And if this was 10, 15, 20 years ago, that would be awesome. Jackie Chan now, it's, it's a bit... I mean, he's, he's getting older. But if this was, if this was back then... I just imagine the challenges. Oh yeah. yeah! I want you to jump off that three-story building, and I want you to film onto the, the top of that little yeah. skinny. I want you to film the rest of this film with a broken ankle. Yes, and I'll do it, and you just do what I do. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, and the the grand finale is uh, is going to be uh, later on in two thousand seven at the uh, Great Wall of China. Wow. So, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it sounds good. I, I'm a big Jackie Chan fan. I think he's not as big a fan as my friend CJ, who has almost all of his films on DVD. And that's wow. a lot of films. Or uh, uh, or my friend Darren, who was in the uh, Jackie Chan fan club and actually got to meet him when he came to Melbourne. Oh, really? Don't tell CJ that. She'll mm. she'll cry. That's not mm. CJ from the West Wing, is it? No. <laughs> No, no, it's not. That's she's a that's a fictional person. Which, See, my my friends bred a real. <laughs> Which Zing! reminds me, uh, <laughs> one of the biggest laughs from uh, last week's uh, Family Guy was uh, Peter had a had a giraffe with a saddle on it. Need name it, uh, Ellison Jenny. He plays CJ on the West Wing. You know, I watched that whole episode of Family Guy and I didn't get many laughs at all. You know, I wish that we had crickets in the studio just so I could bring them out for that little bit. You see, was, was that a good episode of Family Guy? I'm interested. Just was that, was that a particularly good one or was it a moderate one or was it... It didn't have any scenes that I pissed myself at. Okay. So, but, but you enjoyed it. So, no, down on, on what it normally does. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'd uh, I'd like uh, who's it? Dishy Dishy who keeps talking about uh, episodes where uh, one of the people is, no one of them has their own theme song and Peter. he keeps keeps mentioning uh, classic Family Guy episodes. If there's a way that Ross and I could maybe get a copy of you know one of those, so we can know what the absolute heights are that you're talking or, about or even you know i, I think even uh, a casual mention on the blog of uh episode details such as name so that we series could, episode number we could find them on the internet there were a couple of the instances uh that dishy mentioned that i did remember okay um and made me laugh again just wow. from him saying right. remember the time wow so yeah so uh, what, you no know clip? i think I think that I think that would help us try to understand, or have uh, have more contempt. It's, it's <laughs> really uh, one of them. Uh, that brings us to the end of Box Cutters episode eighty-one. Oh, I know. Oh, it's it's been a, a very full episode. I think we're all coming down a little bit now. I'm so. surprised that uh, Brett didn't want to finish a little earlier so he could follow Pete Smith home. <laughs> what? Because <laughs> of your stalking. I stalk nobody. <laughs> 
<laughs> Tell that to poor Wilbur Wilde who's had to change his address. Oh, no, no, that and was Sean the- McAuliffe, he can't come into his <laughs> regular cafe anymore. That was the thing that, uh, that we heard about just earlier. Surprise, surprise, is coming back. Yes. That is a surprise, that, surprise. It's, it's, a, it's a shocking surprise, surprise. I'm truly shocked. As I said, that brings us to the end of Box Cutters episode 81. I want to say thanks very much to Mr. Pete Smith for yes. coming in and Excellent. talking to us. And uh, and hopefully we'll we'll be able to get him in again for a part two yes. for uh, the, you know, the, the years 1965 and post. I wanted to see if, he, if he'd had contact with uh, Kerry Packer or Sir Frank and, and uh, you know, what uh, massive figures they were. Well, uh, around the station and, and this, figures of fear. This is why we have to. Quite a number. This of is them. why we have to uh, have him in again. And thanks mm. also to him for for bringing in the the Graham Kennedy tape. That's magnificent. Thanks also to uh, Jade Walker from Channel Nine for uh, helping organise that. It was a, a special moment for yeah. us. Jade rocks. Uh, also, thanks to Three Triple R, whose studios we use for recording this podcast each and every week. Yes. And April Lamnesty is still on. Uh, subscribe if you haven't. 93881027. Thank you to the videographers for videoing the video podcast. There is no video podcast. Uh, you can email us hooray at boxcutters.net or check us out on the internet at boxcutters.net. Until next week, my name is Josh Canal. Ross McQueen. I continue to be Brett Crawley. Thanks for listening to Box Cutters. Catch us again next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. And hey, let's be careful out there.